You are now listening to the February 29th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, sermon, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship. Hello, everyone. This is Brian Winston from Biblical Stewardship. During the week, did you look to God and store treasures in heaven? The last time we met, we learned from Jesus' word that our eye and heart are connected. What we see is connected to what we have in our heart. Those who look at things that are holy have things that are holy in their heart. Those who look at food will have the heart of desiring food, And those who look at lustful things will have a heart of lust. Those who look to wealth will have wealth in their heart. And those who look at fame will have fame in their heart. Let's take a look at 1 John 2, verse 15. This is a verse we should know well. Do not love the world or anything in it. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. What is the exact meaning of this verse that we know so well? It's saying don't love the world or anything in the world. So why is that? Is it saying that if we love the world or anything in the world, then God won't love us? No, that's not what it's saying. It means if we love the things of this world, then there is no place for us to love God within us. We learned last time that Jesus said no one can serve two masters at the same time. Those who love the things of the world do not have a place in their heart for God. Why is that? Verse 16, which comes next, says, Here is what people who belong to this world do. They try to satisfy what their sinful desires want to do. They long for what their sinful eyes look at. They take pride in what they have and what they do. All of this comes from the world. None of it comes from our Father. When we love the world, why does the place to love God disappear? It's because all the things from the world do not make us look to God. It says that those things are only for pleasure of the flesh and things that look good in our eyes. Our hearts are full of boasting and pride. In other words, if we look at the things of the world, then we have those in our heart. Through those things, we gain pleasure and the place towards God disappears. Therefore, what we see and have in our heart is very important. Today, we'll look at Jesus' word in Matthew chapter 6, which we learned last time. We'll look more into the end of Jesus' word and learn specifically what Jesus wants us to look at. The last time, we learned that Jesus said, Our eye is the light of our body and told us that what we see influences our heart. Then he said, No one can serve two masters. It's because when we love one side, we hate the other side. When we consider one side important, Then we lightly consider the other side. Therefore, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, You can't serve God in money at the same time. Now let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, which is the next verse. I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life and what you will eat or drink. And do not worry about your body and what you will wear. Isn't there more to life than eating? Aren't there more important things for the body than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't plant or gather crops. They don't put away crops in storerooms. But your Father, who is in heaven, feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they are? Can you add even an hour to your life by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the wildflowers grow? They don't work or make clothing. But here is what I tell you. Not even Solomon, in all his royal robes, 
was dressed like one of these flowers. If that is how God dresses the wild grass, won't he dress you even better? Your faith is so small. After all, the grass is here only today. Tomorrow, it is thrown into the fire. We have heard this word from Jesus very often. What do you think Jesus' intention of saying this was? What do you think Jesus wants from us? Yes, he's telling us not to worry about life and what to eat. Why does he tell us not to worry? First of all, God will feed and close us. Second, even if we worry, there's nothing we can do. Jesus said, the eye is the light of the body to tell us the importance of what we see and what we have in our heart. What did he tell us to see in this verse? Yes, he told us to look at the birds of the air. Then he said to think about how the wild flowers grow. What we should see and have in our heart are not worldly values and thoughts, but how God controls and protects his creation. We are worth more than the birds of the air and the wild grass in the field. This is very obvious. Jesus desperately wants us to realize this truth. Our God, the Creator, and God the Father feeds the birds of the air and clothes the wild grass that is here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow. He loves us more than those. He didn't even spare His own Son. He was given to us. He wants us to realize that God will not starve us or make us bare. He's saying that the children of God should not worry and be concerned about how to live and how to eat. People who call God their Father should not do that. Jesus confirms this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 and 32. So don't worry, don't say, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? People who are ungodly run after all those things. Your Father, who is in heaven, knows that you need them. Yes, Father God knows we need all these things. Therefore, those who seek these are those who don't call God their Father. We can look at this verse a different way. If we worry about what to eat and drink and try to seek those with our own effort, then we do not consider God as our Father. It's saying that we don't believe He's in control. If we're God's children, if we regard God as Father, then we shouldn't look at what to eat, drink, or wear. We shouldn't have these things in our heart. Instead, we have to look and have something else in our heart. What is that? Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34. But put God's kingdom first. Do what he wants you to do. Then all those things will also be given to you. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God's children shouldn't worry about what to eat, drink, or wear. We must care about what God's will is, what He wants us to do, and how can we be used for this will to happen here on earth. It's because God is taking care of what we eat, drink, and wear. Shouldn't we think more about the long run? If we don't seek the kingdom of God in His righteousness, then what's the reason why we eat and drink? Would there be a reason or purpose? Would it be for one's own kingdom and righteousness? Does one eat, drink, and close oneself for one's dream and plan? If so, that person does not consider God as Father. That person considers oneself as one's Father. So how about you? Do you worry about what to eat, drink, and wear, like those who do not know God? Or do you completely trust that our Father will feed and clothe us? Are you seeking His kingdom in righteousness and living for that? I desperately hope that we would realize what Jesus wanted us to realize through His Word. This concludes today's episode of Biblical Stewardship. 
thank you for listening.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is our resurrection bodies. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Would you open your Bible, please, to Mark chapter 12, verse 18. It says, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. They were a small religious group, and they were marked by the teaching, uh, believing that there was no resurrection. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They claimed that only the first five books of the Bible were inspired. It's called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Only books that were inspired. So they'd only believe something that came from that. So they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they came to Jesus thinking they could stump him with their argument, probably their best argument, against the resurrection and how nonsensical they thought a resurrection would be. Look at verse 18, continuing, and they ask him a question. Oh, before we do that, I got, I got to give you some background. There was a law in Israel that was established to uh, protect a family line, to keep it from dying out. So if you had a brother and your brother died, I'm talking to guys, okay? If you had a brother and your brother died and had no children, then you were required to marry his wife and she would have a child and then his family line would go on. So that was the law. So there'd always be the family name going on. So verse uh, 18, and they ask him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. Now here comes the story. So there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus' response to them was very simple. He said they didn't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Look at what he says in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. See, that's why a lot of people are wrong. They don't know the Bible. and don't understand the power that God has. Verse 25, Jesus says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven, all right? And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of what? Moses. Okay, so you only believe in Moses? Let me show you something from the Torah. Let's go to the Torah. Uh, let me show you. And he says, and have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, that's a burning bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus says, he is not God of the dead, but of the what? Living. You are quite wrong. <laughs> Jesus is saying that if the dead are dead, then God has used the wrong verb tense here. If the dead are dead and that's it, God should have said, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob. But instead, God says, I what? Am. Meaning, Jesus' point is, they are all very much alive. Someone paraphrased Jesus' words. Someone paraphrased this passage this way. Listen, it's perfect. You're way off base, and here's why. One, you don't know your Bibles. Two, you don't know how God works. Isn't that, that's great, right there. You're totally off base because one, you don't know your Bible. Secondly, you don't know how God works. After the dead are raised up, we're past the marriage business. <laughs> As it is with angels now, all our ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. And regarding the dead, whether or not they are raised, don't you ever read the Bible? How God at the bush said to Moses, I am, not was, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
The living God is the God of the living, not the dead. You're way, way off base. You're way, way off base, Sadducees. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot about the resurrection. And I thought we ought to look at where he talks the most about it. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's open our Bibles. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is going to begin. Let me just lay it out for you. He's going to start off this way. He's going to, he's going to say, now this is the gospel. Ta-da! And there's three points to the gospel. And they're all fulfillments of prophecy. One is that Jesus would die, second, that he was buried, third, that he rose from the dead. So he's gonna state the gospel that saves us. Then he's gonna tell us the evidence, the testimonies. He's gonna say, and there were a lot of people who saw him after his resurrection. He had a real body after he was raised from the dead. Then he's gonna address some people who were Christians who said, oh, there's no resurrection. And he's gonna spend some time debunking that. Then he's going to talk about what Jesus did that guarantees a resurrection for us. Then he's going to talk about what our resurrection bodies are going to be like and when we're going to get them. And then he's going to give us a final word of encouragement. So that's kind of the outline of chapter 15. So we won't look at all of it, but we'll look at quite a bit of it. Let's look at the first few verses. He starts out by saying the gospel. He declares it. Now I would rhyme you brothers of the gospel. I preach to you in which you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here's the first part. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, first importance that what? Christ what? Died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, it was prophesied the Messiah would die, that he was buried, and that he was what? raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, Kephas in Hebrew. What's the other name we know him by? Peter. Then he appeared to Peter. And then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than how many? 500 brothers at one time. That's not counting the women and children. At one time. And he says most of these 500 are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Okay, so he's appeared to all these people, 500 at one time, this is pretty cool. At the time that Paul is writing, he says, you know what, uh, if you wanna to go to talk to eyewitnesses, most of those 500 people are still alive, though some have fallen what? Asleep, let me tell you. Sleep, sleep is a metaphor for death for a believer, all right? Sleep is a metaphor for death. Whenever believers die, it is said that they are asleep, they've fallen asleep, or they've gone to be with the Lord, or they are with the Lord. Only of unbelievers does the Bible say they are dead. Of Christians, it never says they are dead, it says they are asleep. Unbelievers, they're dead, all right? They're dead. What happens when we die? Let me say this. Is sleep scary? No. Is sleep permanent? No. Is sleep good for you? Hmm. Depends, right? If you're a two-year-old, no. I don't want a nap. Is it good for mom and dad? Yes. The more naps, the better, right? So sleep, it's rest. So when a believer dies, the body, it's like the body is left behind and it looks asleep. But the believer goes instantly to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be, boom, present with the Lord. To depart is to be with Christ. There's not a, a second of separation between you and Christ. There's not a death. Death means separation, thanatos. To die means to be separated. And what happens? When you die, you are separated from your body and you go to be with the Lord, okay? That's what happens. When the wicked die, they're separated from God. That's not good, from their bodies and from God. And they've got a whole different future, unfortunately. So, some have fallen asleep, most of whom are alive. Then he talks in the next section about those who are teaching false doctrine, debunks that, and then he says, now, let me tell you, Jesus guarantees you're gonna get a resurrected body. 
How is that? Well, look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. The, what's that word? First fruits. Hold on to that word. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, we go there. Believers are what? Asleep. Though they're still conscious in heaven, okay? For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man, Christ, has come a resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the, here's our word again, first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Let me explain this. We need to be Jewish right now. We need to put on our Jewish glasses. They're right in front of you for those of you in the front row. They're under your seat. Just pull them out and put them on right now. First fruits. What? Well, you know there are different Jewish religious holidays, and they all have a spiritual significance. And for believers, for Christians, those holidays all represent something about Jesus. The holiday that, that was right after Passover Passover was first fruits, okay? First fruits. This holiday that it's referring to is a holiday, first fruits. On the holiday of first fruits, they would go into the field and they would gather a bunch of barley or, you know, you think of wheat like. They would gather just a portion, a little part of that out of maybe the 40 acres you had. And you would take it to the temple and you give it to the priest and it would be lifted up and waved to the Lord, presented to the Lord, all right? You got it? Taken. And the symbolism was, if that wave offering, if the first fruits were accepted by God, that guaranteed that the rest of your 40 acres would be brought in. The harvest was guaranteed. No hail would come in and destroy it. It wouldn't catch on fire and burn. So here was the promise of God, first fruits. Well, it tells us that Jesus is the what? First fruits. In other words, when Jesus died, he rose again and he ascended to the Father and presented himself as the first fruits. We're the 40 acres, so to speak. Jesus guaranteed by his resurrection that we'd have a resurrection. Oh, forgot to tell you this. Jesus died on Passover, right? That day we call Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, was actually, the Feast of First Roots was always on the Sunday after Passover. So the Sunday Jesus rose from the dead was first fruits. He actually rose on the day when they were presenting these offerings to the Lord. In other words, he is the fulfillment of the first fruits. Therefore, he guarantees us a resurrection. Is that clear? Everybody got it? So Jesus is the fulfillment and Jesus guarantees um, he's like the first installment of the resurrection. Well, Let's talk about what the Bible has to say about our resurrection. First of all, it's going to be like Jesus, okay? It's going to be just like Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is talking about that. Let's look at uh, chapter 15. Look at verse, uh, let's start with verse 50. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers and sisters... <laughs> Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Let me explain. You have a body of flesh and blood, right? Pinch yourself, flesh and blood, right? He says this body cannot inherit uh, the kingdom of God. In other words, we're saved, but we can't live in the kingdom of God in the new earth with this body. This body is made only to live on this earth. I call it an earth suit, right? And it's only designed to live on the surface of the earth. If you want to go down, 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 down in the deepest oceans, you can't go in this body. You have to be all protected, right, or the pressure will crush you. If you want to go to outer space, I want to go to the space station. Well, 
You have to be in an environment that's just like Earth's or or else you're gonna die, aren't you? So we have to carry our little Earth environment with us wherever we go. We're in Earth suits. He's saying you can't live in this body of flesh and blood and inherit the kingdom. You gotta have a new body. This perishable, he goes on to say in the second half of the verse, must put on the imperishable. This body is perishable, and we are perishable. This body is perishable. So he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery, the word mystery in the Bible is not like Agatha Christie, figure out the, you know, who done it. Mystery in the Bible means a secret now revealed. The idea is uh, like a curtain pulled back and da-da, you see it now. Behold, I'm showing you a mystery. We understand this now. We shall not all what? Sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. How fast? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's supposed to be like a nanosecond. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. New bodies. And we shall all be changed. Somebody say amen. Look at me and say, I will be changed. I need to hear, I will be changed. Say, you will be changed. Amen. Amen. I want it. I want it. I'm looking forward to it. Now read on. And that's going to happen at the rapture of the church, okay? At the rapture, new bodies, the dead will receive new bodies at the rapture. And those of us who are alive and remain at the rapture on the earth, we're alive at the rapture, we'll be caught up and we'll get our new bodies. And he says, for this perishable body, verse 53, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable, a perishable body, puts on the imperishable, and the mortal, that's a mortal body, puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Right? That's what we're going to be singing. You know, that's gone. And he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory, verse 57, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. We're going to have new bodies just like Jesus. Two references to write down. One is 1 John 3, verse 3. 1 John 3, 2. I'm sorry, 3, 2. There it tells us that we are going to have bodies like Jesus, okay? And we'll be known like Jesus is known. We're going to have bodies like Jesus. When, we, when he appears, we shall be like him, it says. First John 3, 2. And then Philippians 3.21 is really important. Philippians 3.21 says, He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. I'm living from uh, New Living Translation there. He will change, he'll take our mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. I want to know more about the body that I'm going to have as a believer at the resurrection. How about you guys? I want to know more about it. Okay. The first characteristic of your resurrection body is it will be recognizable. People come to me and they say, well, well, I know people in heaven. Will they recognize me in heaven? Will people, and I think a lot of times they're thinking, am I going to have to look the way I look right now? Um, Look, you're going to be the best you. So our bodies will be different. All of that to say, you're going to look fine. You're going to look fine. And you'll be recognizable. I think of uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus. On either side of Jesus are who? Who knows who they were? Who were they? Moses and Elijah. Well, we know because we've been told. But how did Peter, James, and John know? They didn't have name tags on, right? How did they know that's Moses and Elijah? 
Because you see, the Lord gives us insight. We, we will know as we are known, the Bible says. We'll know. We won't need name tags in heaven. Praise the Lord for that too. What is it about name tags? Wherever you, you wear a name tag, now they got these cool ones you wear around your neck and it's got your name, but there's a 50% chance that your name tag will flop backwards and your name won't show. And how many of you does it happen more than 50% of the time? Always, always. So people who are smart now put it on both sides and then it just kind of flips sideways and you're walking around with it this way. I don't know what it is, these things are crazy. But in heaven we'll know each other. We'll know each other, we'll all know each other. Jesus was known, his disciples recognized him and so we will be known as well. Um, another characteristic of your resurrection body is this, it will be imperishable. Look at verse 42. So is with the resurrection of dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. That means it's indestructible. Your new body is indestructible. Well, you're going to have a new body, and it's indestructible. I don't have to tell you that the bodies we're living in here are corruptible. A third characteristic of your resurrection body is this. It will powerful. Look at verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in what? Glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's raised in power. The word power is dunamis in Greek. Say it, dunamis. And we get our word dynamite from it, dunamis. We get our word dynamic from it, dunamo. You know, we get it from that word. And our new bodies are going to be powerful, dynamic. There won't be any limitation to what we can do physically. They will know no limits. We're never going to get tired. I get bugged because I'm doing something fun and I get tired. Well, too much of a good thing. No, in heaven there won't be too much of a good thing. Heaven's going to be awesome. Another characteristic of your resurrection body is this. It's going to be spiritual. Look at verse 44. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a what? Spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Hey, tell me this. Is there a natural body? Yeah, touch your arm. That's a natural body right there. It's a natural body. You're going to have, though, if you have as real as a natural body is, so real will your spiritual body be. Um, this raises a question, something I want to talk about. Well, will our, our bodies be kind of ghostly? Right, no. We're not going to be like a bunch of Caspers. Am I dating myself? Probably. Some of you are going, Casper, don't worry about it. We're not going to be like ghosts or spirits, you know, floating around. How do we know this? Look at Luke chapter 24, but hold your place here in 1 Corinthians. Let's look at Luke chapter 24, just for a second. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples. And this is a little account of that in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. So the disciples are just kind of chatting around, talking around about stuff. And as they were talking, Luke 24, 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Jesus in his resurrection body did not need to walk through doors. He operates in a different dimension, in, in a, some different structure. Next verse, but they were what? Startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. Sometimes that's translated ghost. They thought they saw a ghost, a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So the resurrected body is a body of flesh and bones. It's just completely, awesomely, stupid.
stupendously different, all right? You're going to have superpowers. You're going to have superpowers. It's going to be awesome. By the way, look, this is really important to understand. Redemption is not finished until we have bodies, all right? God created us, humankind, with bodies. Look at the count of creation, right, in Genesis 1. Created us with bodies. For us not to have bodies, we're not human beings anymore. So God is redeeming the human race. That means, ultimately, we have to have bodies, but bodies that can live in heaven. And God said, you know what? I'm going to give you the best model. I'm going to give you one like my son has when he rose from the dead. So the big point of the resurrection is, and the first part of chapter 15 is that Jesus really rose from the dead. He really had a body, and he's the first fruits of those who will really have a resurrection body, a real body, all right? So redemption comes, and we have a body. They, will you join them in, in clapping? I think these are good. They're, they're going to be the... You know, I, I love you guys. There's a little screen thing that says applause, you know. And they, they, we'll just follow them, you know. Okay, so we're going to have real bodies. It's very important for us to be redeemed. Now, listen, when you die, this is what happens. I don't have time to take you there. But in the book of Revelation, uh, this is evidenced. We'll go there sometime, but just take my word for it right now. But when, when you die, you leave your body. We're separated. That's what the word death, thanatos, means. We're separated. Immediately, we go to heaven to be with the Lord, right? In heaven, we're very much conscious. In the book of Revelation, the souls of those who died are with the Lord, and they're actually, these souls are complaining. They're saying, how long are we going to be here? How long until you judge? Because they've been martyred during the tribulation. How long until you judge those who killed us, God. And God kind of pets them on the head. Well, they don't have a head because they're, they're disembodied spirits. They're uncomfortable. They want a body. So the Bible says that, Paul says that we are naked when we leave this body. So what does God do? Book of Revelation says he gives a white robe to us when we die until we get our new bodies. You say, are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. It says it in the Bible. Now, I don't know if it's the plush one, like you get at the resort, you know, the one that if you take it home, they'll charge you, right? I don't know. But they get a white robe until the resurrection. And then when the Lord returns at the rapture, that at the rapture, they are coming with Jesus. They get the resurrection bodies before we do. And then we who are alive at the rapture, like I said, we get our resurrected bodies and we are with the Lord. And see, that's what redemption is all about. It's body, soul, and spirit all the way across. So our friends in heaven right now, I know a lot of them, sometimes I think I have more friends in heaven than I do on earth, but they all right now are in their robes waiting. They're waiting. When are we gonna get the new body? Because they're seeing Jesus in his, okay? They're seeing Jesus in his. And they and us, we're, we promise, and we are promised the same bodies as Christ has. A spiritual body, I think, also means this. A spiritual body that is going to be completely in tune with spiritual things. This body will be completely under the control of the Holy Spirit. What a contrast to this present body. This body which betrays me often. This body, if we don't discipline it, will always go the wrong way. The Apostle Paul says, I have to beat my body into subjection and make it my slave. Lest, you know, I really blow it. This body does not cooperate with us spiritually. Say amen if you believe that does not cooperate. But the spiritual body, when we get it, the spiritual body is going to be completely in tune with God and with the Spirit of God. It will not fight us anymore. It's going to help us. We will be completely fitted. This suit is going to fit us as redeemed people, as saved people, 
perfectly. And, it can, and you know, God's the tailor, and God knows exactly what's going to fit you the best. And I think having a spiritual body is going to be wonderful because it's going to also be such a help as we spiritually worship God. We're limited in our bodies as to just how far and how much we can worship God. These earth suits can only do so much. There are times when I lift my hands, I wish they had two more. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh God, you know, I wish I could do more. Sometimes I wish I could just kind of float and praise God. Sometimes I wish I could sing with three voices in harmony, don't you wish? Some of you wish you had a voice that you could sing with, you know? Your body just isn't cooperating, but it's okay. Make the joyful noise, you know, the Bible says, but it's okay. The day is coming when we're going to have a body that is going to just be able to express the praise that we have toward God. That time is coming. That's that resurrection body. Now, between then and now, what do we do? And I want us to conclude by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, the last verse of chapter 15. Therefore, he says, my beloved brothers, therefore. So he's talked about, you know, I don't have to, to tell you guys you're, you're getting better and better trained in the word and and so whenever you see a therefore, I don't have to tell you, you always look to see what it's what? Therefore. That means you look at the context. So what's the context? Well, in view of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, in view of us being saved by that, in view of the fact that we know there's evidence for that, in view of the fact that Jesus is guaranteeing us a resurrection, in view of the fact that the rapture is coming and we're going to be having this glorious future with the Lord, in view of that, therefore, on account of this, verse 58, my beloved brothers, how about reading? Be what? Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, on account of what we've looked at, therefore, be steadfast, all right? There's a lot of things that, that could pull you in different ways. Be steadfast. You guys, live for Jesus. Live a steady life for the Lord, okay? Be steadfast in light of this. Then he says, immovable. I think it's pretty clear what that means. Don't let anything pull you away from the Lord. Circumstances, comments from people places you might be stationed or have to go or work. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That means you're doing something for Jesus. Are you doing something for Jesus? In view of what's coming, abound. Do a lot for the Lord. Always abounding. Knowing this, because there are sometimes when you're doing stuff for the Lord or you're, you're hanging in there, Sometimes you just wonder, is what I'm doing doing anything? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What you're doing for the Lord is not in vain. In other words, there will be eternal reward, even if you don't see it on earth, okay? Knowing that your labor in the Lord, the work is not in vain. In view of this, we have an amazing future coming, you guys. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen? Let's stand up. I want to ask God's blessing on you. Lord, we are so grateful that we can uh, hear about your word, that we can hear about our future, that you really have given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for the inheritance that we have. Thank you for the resurrection body that you have promised to us. We look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord, please. Just come back soon. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance on you. That means smile on you. And give you his peace. 
and his special protection is my prayer for you in Jesus' name. And everybody said a great big amen. Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello listeners, this is Sharon Lee with a Refining Faith. 
In the last few weeks, we have talked and shared about God's sovereignty. We have also talked about how difficult it is to acknowledge His sovereignty even if our hearts want to do so. It is difficult because we believe God is the one who protects us from hardships or difficult times and trials and prevents them from happening to us. But over the last few weeks, we shared that God is not a powerless being who cannot stop difficult times from happening or someone who just sits and watches us struggle during our times of trial, but rather He's the one who allows them to happen. But as we talked about it several times, it is hard to comprehend that God allows difficult times and trials to happen to us. However, as we saw from several places in the Bible, God is the one who creates and gives us difficulties in life. Because of that, we should not believe in our own thoughts or emotions, but rather we must believe in the God of the Bible as He teaches us and refines our thoughts and emotions to what the Bible says we ought to be. We learn that God giving us trials in our lives is a part of His sovereignty. Then the length of these times must also be in God's sovereignty. When we suffer from these trials, we ask ourselves when it will end, because we feel as if they will never end. I believe that is why some of the writers in the Psalms who express their hardships asked God, How long, O Lord? Do you know how long Job suffered? Do you know how long Joseph was in prison after he was falsely accused? Do you know how long Hannah, Samuel's mother, was ridiculed and harassed by Penina because she could not have a child? Although their stories are written in only a few pages in the Bible, they happened over a long period of time. Job suffered for several months, Joseph was imprisoned at least two years, and Hannah suffered at least five to six years, while Penina had several sons and daughters. Their hardships did not end in a short period of time. But when we read stories like this, there are things that make us wonder. If God was going to restore Job, why did he let Job suffer for several months instead of restoring him as soon as his faith was proved in front of Satan? If God was going to make Joseph the ruler of Egypt, why did he leave Joseph two more years in prison instead of making him the ruler of Egypt as soon as the chief cupbearer was released? If God was going to give Hannah a son, why didn't he give Hannah a baby before Penina? When we look at situations like this, we complain and say, God, you are too harsh. Why would you make them go through these hardships if you were going to give them anyway? I'm sure there are many of you who are in a time of trouble and suffering, just as Job, Joseph, and Hannah were in. Perhaps you are in time of trouble because of a financially difficult situations, failing health, a spouse who does not believe in God, children causing trouble, etc. At times like this, we may be asking, God, for how long? Or even worse, we may be asking, God, did you perhaps forget about me? Even David cried out in Psalm 13 verses 1 and 2, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take a counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long indeed do you think this trial will have to be? Until when do you think it is the right time for it to end? These may be frustrating questions, but no one can ever know. We could guess, but we may never know the exact reasons why Job had to suffer several months, why Joseph was in the prison for two more years, and why Hannah had to suffer the ridicule of a childlessness for several years. It is because only God knows why they needed such periods of time and when the best time was to end the trial. This is also the reason why we must rely on God no matter what. We must acknowledge our feebleness and frailty and rely on God Almighty. We must wait patiently by believing in the goodness of God and Him having sovereignty over all.
Faith will help us wait until God ends our trial. David started Psalm 13 by crying out, How long? but ended by humbly confessing in verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He studied his downhearted complaint of how long he would have to suffer because his pains were so great and unbearable. David confessed that, because there was God's love that protected him during his difficult times. He relied on that never-changing love again and confessed that he would wait for God, believing that God would deliver him. Refining faith is an invaluable tool that molds us to become stronger believers in our faith and walk with God. I'm hoping that we can all give the same confessions as the writers of the Psalms. This has been Refining Faith, signing off. Praise is rising. Eyes are turning to you We turn to you Hope is stirring Hearts are yearning for you We long for you Cause when we the day in your presence all our fears are washed away washed away
our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.